Hello, everyone. I'm JD, and welcome to Dark Medicine, a podcast about true crime, dark medical history, and the ways they intersect. This is my first attempt at a podcast, and there's way too many true crime podcasts, so I had to think something different. Uh, so I apologize in advance for any poor sound or weird recording glitches or really terrible editing. Uh, I promise I'll get better at it. I started researching for my first episode in late 2020, and I couldn't really decide what I wanted to do. And so I thought that plagues would be a good place to start. And not just the plague, uh, but a virus that predates recorded history and was eradicated by a mass worldwide vaccination effort in the 1960s. So smallpox. So smallpox is one of two variants of the variola virus. There's variola major and variola minor, and it's one of many pox viruses, arguably the most severe. Pox virus infections generally start from a human coming into contact with an infected animal or another infected human, and pox viruses are known to cause lesions, skin nodules, or rashes. And there are many, many different pox viruses. There's monkeypox, cowpox, horsepox, raccoonpox, skunkpox, camelpox, sheeppox, swinepox, squirrelpox, crowpox, and even penguinpox. And that's not even all of them. And the one you're thinking of isn't actually a pox virus. Chickenpox is actually a varicella virus, which is a variant related to herpes, which is kind of its own episode. The symptoms of a smallpox infection generally start two to four days after exposure with flu-like symptoms, so fever, joint aches, headache, vomiting, which then progresses to a rash in the mouth and on the tongue, which then progresses to a rash on the face and trunk. The spots will then fill with fluid, ew, which will last around 10 days. They will then scab over, which takes approximately five days, and then the scabs will fall off over the next six days. The patient is contagious until the scabs have fallen off, and the course of the illness is approximately three weeks. But don't worry, because most people don't make it to three weeks. Because smallpox has a 20 to 40% mortality rate, and among those who survived, 30% were left blind. People have pretty much known since the beginning that smallpox was going to kill you. But it wasn't until recently that research discovered how smallpox would actually kill you. A paper published in 2002 by Captain David Barrett Martin of the United States Air Force discusses the pathophysiology of smallpox, citing that the rash would actually appear inside of the body on the esophagus, trachea, and airways of patients in addition to on their skin. Patients also showed bronchitis and degeneration of the alveolar lining cells and congestion in the alveoli from epithelial sloughing from the superior respiratory tract, so your lungs don't work. Research that Captain Martin also referenced dating from 1829 to 1949 shows that the virus affected nearly every body system from your kidneys, liver, spleen, lungs, testicles, central nervous system, and even bone marrow, which leads to multi-system organ failure. The problem with multi-system organ failure is it's really just which system fails first that kills you. For example, there are cases where patients uh, were confused and then started having seizures and then passed away. So that would have been a central nervous system effect of the virus, whereas other people had hemorrhages in their kidneys and that's how they died. So there's a lot of options for how smallpox could kill you, unfortunately. And then if you didn't die from any of those things, you were very susceptible to opportunistic bacterial pneumonia before antibiotics were widely used. And if you managed to survive all of that and you didn't die from smallpox, 
uh, there was a 30% chance of you being left blind. Smallpox didn't actually affect the eyes directly, but smallpox lesions could form on the eyes, usually from contaminated hands touching their eyes, and a smallpox lesion at the limbus, which is the border between the cornea and the sclera, so the white part of your eye, uh, would lead to a corneal ulceration, which would lead to opportunistic bacterial infections, which would lead to the destruction of your cornea. And if all of that wasn't terrible enough, let's go ahead and talk about how long this has been going on for. The earliest documented individual cases of the virus were documented in medical writings from China in approximately 1122 BCE and India, so approximately 1500 BCE. And smallpox lesions were found on the mummy of King Ramses V, who died in 1145 BCE and was discovered in 1898. Other analysis suggests that smallpox may have been present in humans since 10,000 BCE, which means that smallpox has been around for somewhere between 3,000 to 16,000 years. It's a really long time, and more people than Edward Jenner were responsible for leading to its eradication. The best guess for where smallpox first started was in northern Africa, which was then taken to India via trade routes. And it's actually pretty difficult to pinpoint where smallpox started and how it actually spread in early historical accounts, because everything is so different in every account I've read. Uh, one source cites that the first recorded smallpox epidemic was recorded during the Egyptian Hittite War, which is in 1350 BCE. But if you Google that particular war, it's like off by 75 years. It says that war started in uh, 1274 and also ended in the same year. So the spread is a little hazy at the beginning until you get to the 1100s because the Crusades and they ruined everything. And that's when smallpox was spread to the entire European continent. The next clearly known spread of smallpox was due to European colonization and the slave trade, which brought smallpox to the Caribbean, Central, and South America. Smallpox is one of the many diseases that Europeans brought that led to the fall of the Mayan, Aztec, and Incan empires. Smallpox was then introduced to North America by European colonization in the 1600s, and we're all very familiar with the history of using smallpox-infected blankets as a biological weapon against the indigenous people of North America in the 1800s. Australia was the last continent to be exposed to smallpox, with English explorers introducing it in the 1700s. So now the entire world has smallpox, except for maybe the Arctic, because no one lives there, and I don't think there's a polar bear pox. But there is a penguin pox, so maybe it is in the Arctic. I don't know. I didn't look that up. I'll look it up next time. So as far as written records, in 430 BCE, during the second year of the Peloponnesian War, a smallpox epidemic struck Athens, killing around 30,000 people or approximately 20% of the population. I don't speak Greek, so I don't really know how to say this guy's name. I think it's Thysides. He was an aristocrat. He had a written record describing bodies filling the streets and temples and burial rites being skipped. He'd actually had smallpox himself and survived and spoke of how those who that survived were tasked with caring for those who were still sick because they would not get sick again. And then in 930 CE, I think you say this, Razzes, R-H-A-Z-E-S, provided the first medical description of smallpox. He was a doctor in Baghdad and ranks with both Hippocrates and Galen as one of the founders of clinical medicine. His explanation of why those with smallpox do not contract the disease again is the first known theory of acquired immunity. So 
So now that we know all about smallpox, let's talk about how people started treating it. The first known treatments involved quarantining the patient, which is pretty much how we handled everything. Uh, herbal remedies, bloodletting, that doesn't work. Everybody always dies from that. And in one source, it says exposing the patient to red colored objects. I did not see that backed up anywhere else, so I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, later on, different countries and cultures developed methods of variolation, which is the precursor to vaccination. Variolation is the act of taking infective material from a patient and introducing it onto the skin or into the body of an unafflicted person in an attempt to prevent an, a further infection. Medical writings from China show the first recorded treatment to prevent infection around 500 CE, where people would take the scabs from infected patients, dry them, grind them, and then blow the resulting powder up the nostrils of an uninfected person, which we now call nasal insufflation. So insufflation, taking from the Latin word for to blow into, is the act of blowing something, gas, powder, or vapor into a body cavity. We do actually still use this today from simple things like when you get the nasal prongs, the nasal cannula, uh, up your nose to help you breathe. And we also use it in laparoscopic surgeries uh, where they actually blow air into the body cavity to inflate it to provide more working area for the surgeon. I do work in the medical field, and I can't say I've actually ever heard anybody use this term. I don't remember ever hearing it in school. Uh, but the next time I see a surgical report, I'll see if the surgeon uses the term, and I will let you guys know. In Arabic countries, one long-accepted method was for a mother of an unaffected child to visit the home of a mother with an affected child and tie a cloth around the infected child's arm. The mothers would then haggle on the price for the cloth, and it was called, I don't know if I'm saying this right, it says, Tashiri el Jadiri, which basically translates to buying the smallpox. The other accepted method, which was taken to Europe, involved taking the infectious liquid of a patient's pustule and then rubbing it into a cut on the skin of an unaffected person. These methods have varying degrees of success because some patients did end up contracting smallpox and dying because it's a pretty inexact science, uh, but it worked well enough and for often enough that people continued this practice for centuries in Asia, Africa, and Arabic countries. And on that note, Europeans have been trading with China and India literally forever. The Silk Road was established around 207 BCE, and then in 1492, Columbus ran into America instead of India in search of easier water routes to Asia. Europeans desperately wanted spices, silk, and other various goods from Asia. But why weren't they using their known methods for preventing this infection? And I'm pretty sure the answer is just racism. Uh, but specifically, the West's importance placed upon written literature. The methods of variolation were dismissed as folk medicine because medical techniques were passed down via spoken word, and doctors in Europe were all men, whereas, as far as I can tell, female and male medical practitioners used the variolation techniques. Wow, a bunch of white dudes not believe in something unless another white dude wrote it? I'm totally shocked, you guys. Absolutely baffled. Anyway, the person credited with bringing variolation to Europe was Lady Mary Wortley Montague. She was the wife of a British ambassador to Turkey, and she first observed the practice in 1717 while in Turkey. She actually had her son inoculated while she was in Turkey, and then she had her daughter inoculated in 1721 in the presence of Royal Society members. This led to the aristocracy practicing variolation. Uh, Napoleon actually inoculated his army in this way before invading Egypt, and in the American Revolutionary War, George Washington did the same with his own army, so around 1776, give or take. And now, the granddaddy of vaccination, Edward Jenner. His hypothesis was not new. Several other English physicians had similar theories. Edward Jenner is merely the one who published it. To quote Francis Galton, in science, the credit goes to the man who convinces the world, not the man to whom the first idea occurs.
1786, British physician John Fuster had realized that a previous infection of cowpox would cause a person to be immune to smallpox. A farmer, Benjamin Justy, successfully vaccinated his wife and two children with cowpox in 1774, and similar observations were made by a French physician, Jacques Antoine Robopomier, in 1780. It wasn't until 1796 that Edward Jenner first took the pus from a cowpox lesion from a milkmaid named Sarah Nelms, who had contracted it from a cow named Blossom. I really hope that's true, because that's really cute that her name was Blossom. But he scratched said pus into the arm of James Phipps, which is the eight-year-old son of Jenner's gardener, because the children of your employees are very clearly the best test subjects in 1796. The problem with this method is still cross-contamination. And until Louis Pester began his work on germ theory and Joseph Lister worked on asepsis, so aseptic technique or clean technique, the process of variolation in Europe and its colonies still had the problem of leading to deaths in vaccinated patients, but it worked well enough that people kept doing it. So until the late 1800s, variolation was still done with skin to the cow uh, transfer or skin to skin. Uh, this required close contact with livestock, and there wasn't a lot of option for saving the material for later use. Uh, dried material on ivory points was actually first used until the use of glass capillary tubes. And the major problem with arm-to-arm -arm vaccination was the transmission of syphilis. In 1898, the U.S. government actually banned the arm-to-arm -arm vaccination to prevent the transmission of syphilis. But this just still didn't prevent the issue of bacterial contamination in the vaccine material. It's literally on livestock. And in 1925, the U.S. government issued the Therapeutic Substances Act, which banned any vaccine that contained more than 5,000 bacteria per gram. So this led to a lot of research on how to reduce the bacterial load in the vaccines. And in the 1950s, Leslie Collier developed a heat-stable freeze-dried vaccine in a powder form that could be stored at 37 degrees Celsius, which is body temperature 98.6 Fahrenheit, for up to six months and still be effective when reconstituted. He also added the first known additive, which is phenol, to reduce the amount of bacteria in the vaccination material. So this mixture with some minor changes is actually what the World Health Organization adopted for use in their eradication program in 1967. So great, now we have a bacterial-reduced vaccine, but we still don't know how to get it into the body. So in the 1960s, Benjamin Rubin developed the bifurcated needle after experimenting with sewing needles, and this method was adopted as the administration method by the World Health Organization as well. So even with all this, the exact origin of the modern smallpox vaccine is still very not clear. Uh, the inaccurate record keeping all around leads to confusion about who developed what and when, and inaccurate charts also lead to laboratory-created strains with no clear origin. So nobody knows if it started from a cow, from a horse, from a sheep. No one actually knows. And uh, so the last part is the World Health Organization. Uh, they began a massive international search for outbreaks, coupled with large-scale vaccination program in 1967. And by 1971, the last known outbreak in the Americas was in Brazil. In 1972, Southeast Asia had their last outbreak, and in India in 1975. The last known endemic outbreak of smallpox occurred in Somalia in 1977. In 1979, the Global Commission for the Certification of Smallpox declared that smallpox was eradicated, and the World Health Organization endorsed the statement in May of 1980. Various labs across the world began destroying their stocks of the virus, and by 1984, the only known stocks of the smallpox virus were at the CDC in Atlanta in the United States and Vector in Koltsevo, Russia. 
they remain the the only two labs in the world to this day to maintain a stock of the virus, uh, mostly for anti-bioterrorism research if needed and insurance for research that a new variant of smallpox emerge, which I do think it's kind of Cold War-y for the smallpox to only be in the U.S. and Russia. So that's it, I think. Uh, the smallpox vaccine paved the way for many more vaccines that were developed in the 50s and 60s. My own parents were born in the late 1950s, so it's sort of mind-blowing to think that my parents have been alive for the creation of every single modern vaccine, so less than a generation. Uh, so yeah, that's my podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. I'm very sorry for the poor recording and editing. I don't have a website yet, but if you like the episode and want to know about the next one, you can follow Dark Medicine on Instagram at Dark Medicine Podcast. I do have some really sweet cover art on there by the amazing artist Liam Ashurst. If you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, comments, irate ramblings, and the like, please feel free to email me at darkmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. I should have this episode up on Blueberry soon. I'm looking into all the ways to get it published on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, so yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening.